This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to William Gosling and Allison M., who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Brian Howry, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 386 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Terminator Dark Fate, directed by Tim Miller and produced by James Cameron, director of the first two Terminator films. Dark Fate, which is the sixth movie in the Terminator franchise, is a direct sequel to the 1991 film Terminator 2 Judgment Day and features the return of Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. And this will include spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 15th appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. His short story Late Train appears in the February issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, and you should all go check out his TechCrunch article, Somehow Dark Fate Got Me Excited About Terminator Again. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Hello. Then next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, also making her 15th appearance on the show. She's a Ravenclaw Trekkie maker feminist who writes at Medium and lives in Connecticut with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Raphael Jordan, making his 10th appearance on the show. He's written over 25 feature films that have premiered on video and cable television, including The Immortal Voyage of Captain Drake, Star Runners, and Vampire Nation. He also co-wrote the new series Salvage Marines, starring Casper Van Dien and Peter Shinkoda. So, Raphael, welcome to the show. I knew I'd be back. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's start off with Anthony and have you just tell us about what is your history with the Terminator franchise? Um, I think my earliest memory of it is, you know, just seeing commercials for the, for the first film, like on local TV, because I feel like it was in constant rotation in the late eighties. And I remember just seeing the commercials of Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, basically, slaughtering an entire police station and that just completely traumatizing me. Yeah. And it just, it really created this, I think it was like years before I actually had the courage to, to watch the movie. Um, and I think probably I wouldn't be surprised if I may even have seen the second one first, but you know, roughly in, let's say early, late childhood, early adolescence, I saw both of them loved both of them. And I think have seen both of them, you know, a number of times at this point. And the other sequels, I, each time I would like be kind of interested and then the reviews would come out and I just would not be that enthusiastic. And so the only other real, uh, the only follow up that I really had exposure to was, uh, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which I watched and, and liked a lot. Um, but I haven't seen any of the other film sequels. Well, that's funny that you mentioned that you were too scared to watch Terminator because it's it's kind of it's a little hard to even remember this now. But the first Terminator movie is as much a horror movie as it is anything. And there were seriously parts in that movie as a kid, I would have to just close my eyes. I couldn't watch him like where he 
rips the guy's heart out or whatever it is at the very beginning or where he uh especially when he's doing surgery on his wounded eye like I, there was no i could just could not watch that for the longest time i'd have to cover my eyes Mm-hmm. I, I think that is definitely true, although I think it also just speaks to how these things sort of exist in our minds, even separate from the movie itself. That I, I remember watching and liking the movie and probably being frightened by it. I think for me, the big striking thing was just seeing the, um, you know, the metal skeleton at the end chasing them through the factory. But, um, yeah, the, for some reason, the, the commercials probably because I saw them when I was younger stuck with me more than anything, particularly in the movie itself. Right. And then the sequel is much more of an action movie. I mean, I, I, I love them both. I mean, I, I've seen both those first two movies dozens of times, but it's kind of interesting. It, it's almost the same thing as um, Alien and Aliens, where you have one that's more of a horror movie and then one that's more of an action movie, and they're both great. And the second one kind of ups the scale of it. Um, and it's interesting that those two franchises from around that same time both kind of followed that same pattern for their first two installments. Right, and both with James Cameron as a director for at least one of the films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we should say, so James Cameron directed, I mean, directed Aliens, Ridley Scott directed Alien, but then he he wrote and directed um, both of the first two Terminator movies. It was based on his idea. I mean, he basically did everything. Um, it's actually funny, in one of the special features I watched, it was talking about how James Cameron was just basically better than everyone on the crew at their jobs and you know like he was better at special effects than the special effects guys and like everything and, and so he found it just intensely frustrating uh that people weren't all up to his standards and was just you know yelling all the time and, and everything um but you can see i mean they're so good i mean especially if you go back and rewatch i i, I went back and rewatched a lot of terminator 2 and it's just so well done just all you know all the action scenes i mean it just makes your heart pound and the special effects all still look great and it's always clear what's happening and it's, you know, it really captures the emotions of everything. And, um, yeah, this is just like movie making at its finest, as far as I'm concerned, Terminator one and two. Um, but so how about Sarah, what is your, uh, background with the Terminator movies? Uh, well, I, I was actually completely obsessed with James Cameron when I was a teenager. Um, again, I was so was James Cameron. So that's kind of, a- <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, obviously, in the 90s, like, the, the thing is, James Cameron has this really charming idea of feminism, and his only real <laughs> issue with that is that he hasn't really updated it since the 90s. I mean, when we, when, when I saw, you know, um, Alita Battle Angel, it felt like a wonderful movie to watch in 1995. Um, and it, you know, it just felt like it came out in 1995. Other than the effects, um, I bought or I found the script to Titanic two years before it came out for sale. So I spent two years worried about it um, <laughs> before it came out because back then there wasn't the internet. The spoilers weren't really a thing, and so you could literally just go into a mall and there would be these vendors, and you could buy scripts to movies that hadn't come out yet. Um, but you know his sort of strong female obsession thing um, that, you know, and it wasn't just like, I think that unfortunately there's sort of this strong woman thing that it ends up being this commercialized, like Megan Fox happens to know how to repair motorcycles thing. Um, you know, and it's, it's always like this super sexualized uh, idea of a strong woman and James Cameron's women were not really that. Um, and so I resonated with that very deeply and I loved the abyss. I loved aliens. Um, 
I loved, you know, the Terminator movies. Um, and so I was, I was very, very much, you know, it was, it was a very formative part of, of Sarah Michener's upbringing. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, one of my like, all time fondest movie memories is in, is watching Terminator 2 in the theater. And there's the scene where they're in the elevator escaping from the, um, mental asylum. And, yeah. um, Arnold Schwarzenegger says, get down. And then he's shooting at the T-1000, which is on top of the elevator. And Sarah Connor grabs the pistol out of his belt and starts shooting. And the whole yeah. audience just started cheering at that point. And yeah, at that time, you had never like seen, you know, female characters who were that, you know, proficient with firearms and tough and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was really, yeah, it, it really, um, it was new and fresh at that time. Yeah. Um, so how about Raphael, what was your, what's your experience with Terminator? Well, like you said, uh, it's definitely a, you know, a sci-fi horror film and it scared the hell out of me as a kid. I remember my older brothers indoctrinated me and, uh, it's just so tense, especially at the ending where he's chasing them down at the factory. And even when she's crawling through the, the crusher thing and it's chasing after her to this day, I have a tough time watching that. It's just. <laughs> too damn tense, you know, and also makes me claustrophobic. But then, you know, I was John Connor's age, more or less, by the time T2 rolled around, and it was just such a great spectacle. You know, like you said, it really upped the ante. And, uh, you know, at the time, too, I was just Guns N' Roses was on top of the world, at least for me. You know, I was obsessed with Slash <laughs> and Axel, mm -hmm. and they put out the theme song to that movie, and Arnold was even in the video. So, man, Summer 91. I, I specifically think of Summer of 91, and I think of Terminator and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but mostly Terminator and Guns N' Roses. Well, yeah, it's funny you mention that because I was also about the same age as John Connor when Terminator 2 came out. And, you know, I was even growing my hair like long over the like my bangs long over my face. And, and I remember one of my friends saying, you know, like, you're just copying John Connor. I'm like, no, I've been doing this for a long time. But uh, I was totally copying John Connor. And, and yeah, and, and Edward Furlong is, he's like the fucking coolest 12 year old you've ever seen in that movie. He's like so charismatic and, you know, uh, yeah, just effortlessly cool. And um, yeah, oh, yeah, it's sort of a shame he didn't have more of a, you know, career subsequently. Uh, I gather he was sort of partying a little too hard, but uh, he's, he's so, you know, and especially like, I can't, I usually can't stand child actors in movies, but he's so good in that. Um, yeah, you definitely just wanted to hang out with him and his friend at the Galleria, you know, like ride on their moped. I did. I was yeah. like, man, these guys are cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so nobody is, I noticed nobody's really mentioning Terminators three through five. I mean, Anthony said he never actually saw them. Did, did you, Raphael, did you ever, I assume you saw Terminators three through five? Oh, yeah. I've seen them all multiple times. And honestly, I'm probably the closest wow. thing to an advocate for them. I mean, I think they all have their charms and they're all flawed in, in various ways. And I think that's, you know, I don't know how much we'll get into each of them or the franchise as a whole, but there's a lot of fun inconsistencies and time travel paradoxes to bring up uh, across the films. Yeah, but so we'll say so James Cameron wasn't involved with the third, fourth or fifth movies. He had um, sold the rights to the, you know, as I said, he had come up with the story and written the script and everything, and he had sold the rights to it to the producers in exchange for letting, for them letting him direct the first movie. Um, and so then it's a they, little, they I don't I, exist for me. I, I, <laughs> I just like the, the aliens that came after too. I, you know, I, I just, I've written them out of my, some of the Prometheus ones have been good. I don't know if talk about that, but, uh, mm. you know, I, I, mm. I think that they were nice, forgettable, disposable action films that you see once and you buy popcorn and then that's it. But to me, they're not like part of Terminator story. Yeah. So, I mean, he had, um, I, I've seen conflicting things online about whether he, 
you know, wanted to make a third one or didn't. But in any event, he, you know, went on to make um, Titanic and then all his other movies and, 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 you know, wasn't involved with the Terminator movies after that. Uh, well, I think this- once he once he made Terminator 2, I think he knew on some level or realized eventually he needed to make a third one because he, he really kind of opened up a can of worms. The first film is a perfectly contained closed loop story. But then the minute he changed his mind and said, well, maybe uh, fate is malleable and not completely elastic and we can change it. Well, then he kind of just went down a rabbit hole that there's no escaping from. Yeah, yeah. And especially, I mean, I don't think any of the time travel stuff in 2 makes really any sense and the more you go into the series it just makes less and less sense so i'm not even gonna harp on that too much uh, with this new movie but um but yes yeah, oh, so- that's what i'm here for don't worry <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i'm not at all fond of three four or five i actually think that terminator salvation which is set in the future and is about the future war uh at least is kind of you know visually i think is is quite striking and you know at least is sort of trying to do something different, but uh, Terminator 3 and Terminator 5 um, just have way too much sort of goofy humor for me and, uh, you know, know, are not horror at all. And I just, I'm not really a fan of those. Um, So, Raphael, out of 3, 4, and 5, which one would you say is the strongest? Well, I guess I had to have to say the third one, Rise of the Machines, because I feel like if nothing else, and you're right, the comedy uh, was already instantly a little dated when that came out. Some of it was over the top, like the sunglasses and talk to the hand. But um, I think the one thing that it did that was imperative was it ended the trilogy correctly, like Judgment Day had to happen. And so if nothing else, it accomplished that and set things right. Um, the, the fourth and fifth had their moments too, but, you know, Genesis, I actually really appreciated how they were trying to essentially put a twist on everything, you know, with the revisiting events from the past, but the timeline had been irrevocably altered. But admittedly, that got so complicated, you'd kind of needed Doc Brown with a whiteboard telling <laughs> you what was happening and, you know, people's eyes were glazing over. So I think that with this one, obviously, they streamlined it and pulled it back. I think the most interesting thing about the original T3 versus this one is that it reframes the story. With Terminator 3, the original, it was John Connor's continuing story because he was, you know, the leader and savior of humanity. But with this one, what I really enjoyed was it kind of reframed it as Sarah's story. Like it makes a nice trilogy now out of the Sarah Connor story. Yeah, and let's so let's come back to that. But so, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I don't really know what to say about three, four, and five. <laughs> I mean, like, I guess did you guys see? I, I sent you all the um, uh, what's the guy's name? John Brancato or something? Yeah. So he, mm-hmm. uh, uh, this is a guy. He worked as a screenwriter on three and four and they took some of his ideas for five um and just and and, and so he wrote this long post at one point just talking about what a clusterfuck all these movies were um and uh, i don't know sarah what 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 was your uh reaction to to i almost didn't want to i mean i read that i read it out of curiosity after the point where he said he hated t2 yeah like (laughs) i as soon as he said he hated t2 i was like what what is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> um, and so it, that really tainted everything else that he had to say. But then it was just, you know, it was just this sad, cynical, uh, description of what goes on in Hollywood when everyone's just desperate to make a sequel because it's a cash cow and nobody gives a shit whether it's good. And it, it's like, they, they need to figure out at some point that audiences can tell, like, whether or not they can articulate it is another thing, but, 
it always works out that way. Very, very rarely, I feel like, do, do, you know, do studios go in saying, we're just going to do this to make money, and everybody in the cast clearly doesn't care, and, you know, and the, and the production team and so on, and the writers are just sort of hacking things together, and it magically turns out okay. If people don't care, if the writers and the directors are clearly don't care about what they're doing and don't have a vision and a passion, it shows all the time. I mean, I guess, to be honest, I would probably take issue with that. <laughs> I mean, just because I feel like, yes, at the very top, it's always a business decision and it's cynical, you know, like the studio wants to make money, obviously. But then once the jobs are handed down to the various cast and crew, everyone on board wants to make the best movie possible. I mean, there, even though he did sound incredibly bitter and cynical, I, I could see between the anecdotes where he, you know, obviously when he was hired, he wanted to make a good story because he really loved the first one. And I understood his complaint about the second one because it was always kind of my complaint too, kind of let the story off the hook by implying Judgment Day might not happen. So I do think, you know, obviously Jonathan Mostow, when he made Rise of the Machines, wanted to make a really good movie. And I think it's a decent movie. It gets kind of overly ragged on. I mean, it's a it's a two and a half star movie, but the first two are four star movies. Well, I mean, the thing that maybe you can explain this to me, Raphael, working in Hollywood. But the thing I never understand is like, yeah, I, I, I always get the sense that like the special effects people and stuff are really into it. And they're always like, oh, I spent six months sanding this like rock that's going to be in the background of one shot no one's ever (laughs) going to see and then the screenwriter is like yo man like this my friend called me up and was like we need a script by tomorrow and i was like fuck i'm wasted but i sat down and i wrote something you know and it's like why is there so little effort put into the screenplay which is the most important thing when so many people on the crew are just pouring their heart and soul into these into the, the visuals and things you know Well, I can try and clear that up a little just in my limited experience. You know, I've never worked on a film as big as Terminator 3 or 4 or 5, obviously. Um, Yeah, In general, what happens is you wait and wait to get a job, and then the minute you're hired, it's an extreme rush. You know, there's never enough time, and that's the unfortunate thing, because the minute... They call you. I mean, this happened to me with even Salvage Marines to a degree. Um, you know, that, that show that you mentioned in my intro, you know, essentially you get a call and they're like, Hey, so we're finally greenlit and we really need the script immediately to, to secure the bond and the financing. So can you give it to us like in a week? And you're like, what? You're like, no. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I can give you something in a week, but are you going to guarantee I've got time to fix it and make it right? And sometimes you get that time. Sometimes you don't, you know, so you, that's kind of the inherent catch 22 with the process is oftentimes by the time movies are moving forward, they need the script yesterday, you know? And yeah, I, I've, I've experienced that and it sucks. And I think that's probably See, what Brent Cotto went through. that just confirms my, my opinion that, that that's a terrible way to do things. <laughs> it is, but it's not for la- lack of trying. It's like you always, you know, trust me, like these writers are pulling their hair out and sometimes, you know, they're sequestering themselves in hotel rooms for six to eight weeks if they get that luxury, you know, but they're definitely like trying to make it better. It's just, it's such an upward, like uphill battle for quality always. Yeah. And and it's not really clear where you like, you know, Terminator one, it's like, you know, a human soldier versus a robot killer and, you know, to protect this human woman. And then it's like, okay, well, Terminator two, we're going to have like the cyborg robot versus this awesome liquid metal robot and protect to protect the kid. And, you know, and it's like, you know, it sort of like flows logically from the first one. And then it's not at all clear where you would take the story after that. And we, you know, you've seen like Rise of the Machines, Terminator Salvation, Terminator Genesis, and and now even Dark Fate are all sort of like 
different stabs at where you take the story that are all, mm -hmm. some of which are like clever, um, but none of which have the same sort of like, oh, that's the logical next step, at least to my mind, um, as Terminator 2 following from Terminator. I mean, that's a really good question. I've been actually, as I was waiting for this phone call to happen, I was sitting here drawing like timelines on a piece of paper. <laughs> I'm like trying to make sense of the movies. And I kind of found myself, the more I tried to make sense of it, like questions would pop into my head just about Terminator 2. Like who even sent back uh, the T-1000? It's because they had yeah, changed the yeah. timeline. So it's like, yeah, I, I was trying to think to your question, what was the next logical step? And I think Dark Fate probably comes closest because it's like they've essentially just got this inevitability of a robot uprising and all you can do is postpone it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll say, like, I actually hadn't even seen Terminator Genesis, you know, um, until I was getting ready for this panel. And so I, I was not planning to see Dark Fate at all. Um, I thought the trailer just like the, looked like they were rehashing Terminator 2, and it just I wasn't that excited about it. So really, the only reason that I saw this movie at all is because Anthony on Twitter said, just got out of a screening of Terminator Dark Fate. Didn't know the person next to me, but as the credits rolled, we both turned to each other and declared, that was awesome. <laughs> so, uh, so you And can... now you're just furious at me. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. But, um, so, but, <laughs> but, so we, so you, you have everyone, you have Anthony to thank for this panel. But so, Anthony, so you tell us about seeing this movie early, because this was like a week or two before it came out. Right. Um, so I went to a, a press screening and it was, um, on an IMAX screen, uh, in Lincoln Center in New York. So I think I saw it under probably pretty close to ideal circumstances and, you know, surround, I think like half of it was, you know, reviewers and critics and entertainment journalists and half of it was just Terminator fans and it was just a very rowdy and excited audience. And so I think even when I saw it, I could sort of explain, um, that I had reservations and saw shortcomings in the film, but I think I just walked out of that screening just really buzzing with excitement and enthusiasm. I remember somebody in the lobby was just humming the Terminator theme song. Like, you know, it just felt like, I don't know, especially because the trailers, I agree, the trailers had been really bad. And so I walked in with very, very low expectations and um, I think pretty also because I, I really liked that just that final action scene. I, I really just walked out of being like, that was so much fun. I had a great time. And, um, and, you know, since then, I think some, some of these reviews, the, the critical response has been a little bit more mixed than that. Um, and the, the movie isn't exactly setting the box office on fire. Uh, but, but I, I do think like the, I stand by at least, I think that my response, my initial response had a little bit to do with the circumstances and, and, and just that sort of initial buzz of seeing the movie. But, um, I also think it was, it was a really good time. Yeah. Well, it's funny how the circumstances can affect your perception of a movie like that. Like, um, you know, when Sarah and I saw, um, Star Trek Into Darkness, it was a similar thing where I think we saw it on IMAX and it was like, every, like half the audience was dressed in Starfleet uniforms and stuff. And it was, it was an amazing <laughs> time, you know, and, um, I, it, it felt like people who didn't see the movie under those some same circumstances had a much less um, enthusiastic uh, reaction to it. But um, <laughs> for sure. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about the um, the the opening of the movie. Um, so so we start out and um, it's it's 
not that long after the events of Terminator 2, because Edward Furlong, John Connor, is still like 12 or something, and he gets killed by some other Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator model that's wandering around. Um, and so, um, so Sarah, what did you think of that, um, that opening sequence there? I was very nervous for about, probably about a half an hour, um, after that, because one of the things that I hated so much and why the, you know, Alien 3 and all of the other Alien films after Aliens don't exist for me is, you know, the start of Alien 3, they kill off two of the main characters that survived all of this stuff in Aliens. And it's like, they could have just gotten off the ship and said, okay, well, I'm never doing that again, and then went home. And it's, it's, it was such a disservice and so disrespectful to the previous story and to the audience who loved the previous story to do that. And so I was like very worried that they were going to do the same thing here and just kill him off for no reason. Um, you know, just because he was an extraneous piece of plot and, uh, they did not do that. It ended up being a very big part of the story, a big part of the emotional development and the character development. Um, and so ultimately I approved of the decision. Raphael, what'd you think of that? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting, bold way to go. I mean, truthfully, I thought it was a dream sequence at first. And then after the second shot and she's holding him in his ar- in her arms, I was like, wow, holy crap. <laughs> they really killed <laughs> off John Connor. Um, I think, you know, I, I was reading some comments by Tim Miller after, and um, I think they made the right choice there because basically it's interesting that like John and Sarah both by saving the future kind of robbed themselves of their future in a way, you know, John was supposed to grow up and be this great guy, but it's almost like the, the Bill and Ted conundrum. What if you don't grow up and fulfill your destiny? Well, then, then what do you do? You know? <laughs> yeah. And he said, you know, no one wants to see John Connor doing something truly mundane, like being just an accountant or something, you know? And I think by killing him off, it actually probably was the right thing for the story because then it continue. it allows Sarah to continue and basically, you know, makes her story that much more tragic and engaging to me. Yeah, I don't have a huge problem with them killing him off at the beginning because, yeah, it's like the sixth movie. They got to do something different. Like, I get that. But I felt like having him die as a 12 year old, as Sarah was saying, with Alien 3 kind of undermines the effect, like the the emotional impact of the ending of Terminator 2. You're like, they went through all this stuff and then he just dies shortly thereafter mm. in in very sort of like a, you know, not a very dramatic way. So I I would have been, I I think it would have been better for me if, um, you know, like there's sort of the voiceover from Sarah and she's like holding John in her arms and he's like 22 or something, you know, like, like they've, they've managed to survive for a long time. And there's like, it's night and there's flame and smoke and the Terminator's walking away, having just killed him. And so, you you know, like that you have a sense that there was like some sort of more epic struggle that he didn't just Right. Easily. But, you know, that that and and the fact and that he lived for so long after the end of Terminator 2 would have. I guess there was. Yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, uh, sorry. I guess there's two reasons. Well, actually, funny. Um, <laughs> to your first point about wh- why was he still 12? It took place three years after the end of Terminator 2. I thought, you know, he would have been a little older by now. Maybe they just thought it was easier to make him look exactly the way he did in terms of the CGI. I don't know. Um, he should have been like, yeah, at least 16 or 17 by then. But I guess logically, he needed to die relatively soon after those events because the implication was that there was already additional T-800 Terminators wandering around looking for him. They came from a future that was never even going to happen. And this is all part of how I was trying to wrap my mind around the timelines and see if it really made sense, almost as a screenwriting exercise. Obviously, 
I think the only way it makes sense is if the if the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator that killed John, he had to have been around during the events of T2. He just wasn't seen on screen. You know, so how it took him three years to catch up to him in Guatemala, basically. Right. I'm I'm just saying it took him 10 years to catch, you know, they they managed to stay off his radar for 10 years. But finally, he, he caught he tracked them down. Yeah, that, that definitely could have worked. My interpretation was that because I think part of what you're getting at is is this question of how can Terminator still be showing up, even though Skynet, as we know, it has been erased by the events of Terminator 2. But for I think the way that time travel is implied to work in Dark Fate is that they were all sent from this future. And so they are still showing up in the in this timeline, even though the future they're sent from doesn't exist anymore, because it's not just the T-800 who kills John, but it sounds like periodically these Terminators are showing up, you know, throughout the, the first two decades of the 21st century. And, and um, Sarah, is, Sarah Connor is showing, you know, is tracking them down and killing them. So I don't think it's like a bunch of Terminators who arrived before the beginning of Terminator 2. I think they were all sent from from the Skynet timeline and then are arriving, continue arriving. Well, it's yeah. an interesting question, and they were admittedly vague about that because it was one of the biggest question marks I had after was who, what are these Terminators that she's hunting down and killing? Like, who are they trying to kill? I mean, in the interim, like John was already dead, so what were they after? I almost feel no, like no, but like I think that the idea, and Anthony, you're right about that. In, in the future, that they sent like 20 Terminators back in time, staggered over 20 years or something, all. Right. Assigned to kill John Connor, just and, and like like one of them's going to get him. You know what I mean? Like I think yeah. that's what the and I thought that was a great decision because it was almost a commentary on you know apps that constantly don't work and technology. <laughs> like it, it, like you know the the whole idea that 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 this technology would be perfect, that it would be performing perfectly with an awareness of of you know that what happened in the new past or whatever is you know is implausible, right? So it, I love the idea that it's almost like a glitch. You know, that, that these, the original program was like, oh, you know, let's send 20 of these back in time every five years to try to kill the guy just in case. Um, well, and that way, if anything does happen, you know, and the timeline is altered, we continue to, to do our thing. And since, since these are disposable machines, that is very in, in, you know, sort of in plot in terms of how they think about, about, you know, just being totally okay with, with, uh, the disposable army. So I really loved that yeah, decision. Yeah. But but like I said, it didn't make any sense in T two. So I'm not going to worry about whether it makes sense in in T six. <laughs> like, well, I'll give you I'll give you another one. It doesn't even really make sense that it's the Arnold version. It should have been another T one thousand because if we're going off, you know, the T two timeline, you know, at that point they weren't sending back T eight hundreds anymore. But they needed it to be Arnold, or they wanted it to be. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So I'm, I'm not. I feel like that that's just like a rabbit hole that is not going to produce any, you know, <laughs> like valuable insights or anything. Cause, cause yeah, cause it's like it, they did, they did, they did it cause they wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movies. It, I don't, I don't think that there's a whole lot to, you know, elaborate beyond that. But so, so yeah, so let's, let's move on to the, um, to the new Terminator. So in this one, uh, the, the, the evil Terminator is a Rev 9, which is sort of like the, um, the TX from Terminator 3, except that it's, uh, you know, molec- monomolecular or what is it? Poly alloy. I don't know what, forget whatever, whatever it's, it's sort of like liquid skin stuff can operate independently of its endoskeleton body. Um, so, uh, so Anthony, what did you think of the, of that villain? 
I liked it. I mean, I agree that, you know, to your earlier comment about not necessarily following logically from, I mean, if you think about the way T2 built on the first Terminator, like, I agree that, well, again, not having seen the sequels, my sense is that none of the sequels, including Dark Fate, has found a way to really top the T-1000. Like, I feel like there's something just so perfect. And, and I know you weren't just talking about the villain, but but certainly part of that is, I don't know, like, like that that really was um, pretty close to, like, the platonic ideal of a, of a Terminator villain. So... This is an interesting variation, um, and the visual, I think, is, is very striking, and, and, and it's in, definitely sort of makes for some interesting action scenes because you've essentially got two different Terminators with one brain going after them. Uh, I, I wish they'd done a little bit more to explore the, the powers of the Rev-9 because I, I felt like, in a way, like, if both halves behave the same way and, and have the same strengths. I, I don't know why it's not just split the whole time. Um, and, and so I thought like there was room to, to maybe differentiate it a little bit more, but as just, you know, a, a villain that, that, that feels like I haven't, like they have like clashing personalities or something or, or more like, you know, they had like, co- like have complementary powers or something like that, that like the, Tag you know, this, the, the the soft version, you know, is really good at like insinuating himself into certain situations, but the skeleton is there for brute strength or, or something that made it yeah, seem cool. yeah. more distinctive. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll say, you know, the, 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 th- I did like in Terminator 3 how the, t- I, th- I think they had, they tried to make the TX like too many different things. Like it can change shapes and it shoots laser beams and all this stuff, but it's really distinctive powers that it can infect less sophisticated machines and control them remotely. Mm-hmm. And I thought that the whole movie should have just, they should have like forgotten all the other stuff that was too, that was like a less good version of T2 and just focused on that. Cause I thought that was actually a pretty good original idea or you know, like an original concept for a, for a Terminator. Um, but so, uh, so Sarah, how did you, how did you feel about the Rev-9? Um, I was fine with it. It, you know, it didn't bother me. Like I think the main the main thing that bothered me about the film was that a few times it veered too much into Mission Impossible territory. You know, there's this whole chase scene that's... And don't get me wrong, I understand that the genre of, you know, of the Terminator, what makes it a Terminator, is the whole movie's supposed to be a chase scene. Um, but the whole, like, uh, having a fight on the plane in midair while it's falling, and then... Yeah, okay, the wait, we're getting, you're getting, we're getting ahead. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, but so I agree with you, though. I hated to... that, but we're going to get to that in a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, splitting the Terminator was it was one of those things where it's like it would always, 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 always be more effective if it has the uh, the ability to split. It would always be able to get more done by being two entities, and that to me made zero sense. Other than that, I really loved the look of it. I loved. You know, the fact that they were almost trying to, you know, wink, wink, say, well, one of them is from T1 and the other one is from T2. And so there's this weird marriage. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it had some, it, it complicated things and that it created its own plot holes. But other than that, I liked how it looked. Well, it's interesting that you say that Terminator movies are one long chase scene, which is true on one level. But it was actually striking to me when I went back and rewatched Terminator 2 that there are really only two big action sequences in the first 90 minutes of the movie and all the rest of it is character development. 
And if if I have really a complaint about the early stages of this movie, it's that I felt like there wasn't enough character development at all, particularly of the um, the sort of new John Connor type character, who's Danny. Um, well, chase chase might be the wrong word, but more like hunting. Like the, mm-hmm. the, even during the character development, you know, they're being hunted the whole time, and you feel that sense of tension. Right, but so how do you, what do you think, Sarah, about that? Do you did you feel like there was enough character development? So so the new oh, let me just say so the new characters are are this are Danny, who's a um, young woman living in Mexico who works at a um, some sort of car um, factory. Um, and then there's this soldier from the future sent back to protect her grace who has sort of cyborg enhancements and can, um, uh, you know, fight really well for short periods of time, but then her body kind of crashes, which actually I thought that was super cool. Um, but, but what did you think, Sarah, about the, the character development? Did you feel like you got enough character development for those characters? I feel like you got enough that you desperately wanted more, especially it does make it very obvious that the parts of the film that were extraneous and just over the top did feel like throwaways, you know, um, where it's like, well, you could have had 30 extra minutes of the good stuff. And instead you went with this. Um, but I think that, you know, all three characters, uh, all three women characters, um, were very well-rounded for how much time they had. Uh, but yes, I, I, I wanted more, but I think that I was overall very impressed with how they handled that because all of them were, you know, old Sarah was super compelling. Um, and both of the young women uh, were also very compelling and, and you, you, you felt deeply for them. Mm. About Raphael, what did you think of those three female hero- heroines? Oh, um, I loved all three, uh, especially Mackenzie Davis and, and Linda Hamilton. I thought they were fantastic. Um, and in terms of the character development, yeah, I, I thought Grace came across pretty well written and I enjoyed her scenes in the future and I really wanted to spend more time with her. Danny kind of got the least time, but I guess if they make more installments, she'll be around for that. Um, quick note about the Rev 9, though, uh, just because it didn't get mentioned. Uh, whenever it would split into two parts, it was less effective. So that was why it, w- it didn't just do that all the time. Like, you could clearly see that especially the outer liquid metal shell was not particularly effective. Like, Grace was just hmm. getting the better of it every single time. So it was much stronger when it was together. Okay, noted. I'll say about Grace, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I, I also, I, I thought she was pretty cool, but I, I thought there should have been more character development, particularly as we as it goes, we find out that she was a child before the new judgment day. And Mm -hmm. so it just seems like, you know, she's coming back to this world that she remembers from her childhood where there's like ice cream cones and, you know, all this like nice stuff. And it doesn't, it didn't seem like there were ever any moments where she's like, Oh my, and her parents are alive and everything. It didn't, it, it, it didn't seem any, like there were really any moments where it dealt with what would it be like to, you know, to live most of your adulthood in this destroyed world and then come back to this, world that's a comparative paradise that you remember from your childhood. Uh, I just felt like there was a lot they could have done with that. Um, mm, true. But um, I don't know, Anthony, you have anything else you want to add on, on any of this stuff? No, I mean, I would agree in general that I think the, the character development felt a bit abbreviated. And I mean, that, that Danny in particular, I, I thought kind of got short shrift. Um, and, and there's some specific reveals about her that I think weren't handled very well. But, um, I, I was also, you know, given the, cons- the general framework of the movie where it was so action driven, I thought both, um, Sarah Connor, I mean, who does have the advantage of, you know, the past movies, 
but also the Mackenzie Davis character, Grace, like came across really, really distinctly and, and, and as really compelling characters for me. And I thought Danny was fine. She just didn't make a strong an impression. See, I, I feel like Danny did. I mean, the thing is like, part of it is that the reveals are not shocking at all. You know, they're coming, right? And so right. part of the reason why you know they're coming is because they show Danny early on as being a wonderful leader, but in a very feminine way, like in a very matriarchal way. Like she is literally making lunches for her brother and her father. She is, um, going to the, uh, the, the manager of the factory where she works and not only, you know, saying, I want my brother to have my job. Um, and he's uncomfortable with that because she's better at the job. And you're, you're you know, you're, you're making all these connections as a viewer. Like, well, okay. Why is she better at her job? Um, <laughs> and she is, you know, telling the manager, well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell, go out there and tell all these workers that they are just going to be, you know, she's tough. She's, she's literally threatening the manager to tell, uh, uh, to tell on him that they're all going to be replaced over the next few months. Um, so I did think that they, you know, that they, they did point out that she was a natural leader, but they did it just enough, um, to, to make it make logical sense. But at the same time, you knew that it was her, not her son. Like yeah. you, you knew the whole time. Was there a, like a single eight-year-old in the audience who was thrown by that? You know, like, <laughs> it was just like, even, uh, even from the trail. I mean, I feel like even from the trailers, you knew that it was her. Like who's going into this movie. Who's not going to immediately pick up that, that Danny is not the mother of the leader of the human resistance, but is the herself, the leader of the human resistance. That whole thing just seems like a complete waste of time. That sort of red herring. Well, and that one, that right. one dialogue that they had, uh, on top of the train where Sarah, you know, is in full bitter mode and she is talking about, oh, you know, you're clearly the mother. You're just a womb. That conversation, like, cemented it for me that that was what they were going to do, that they were going to do the opposite. And so it would have been better, I think, if they hadn't had that conversation. That said, I think I understand why they did it. Like, it, the whole thing is, is a commentary on, you know, sort of this, uh, feminist message that we've all been talking about within the feminist community of, you know, she's not somebody's mother. She's not somebody's sister. She is her own savior. Um, and so I, I appreciated <laughs> that that was there, but from a storytelling perspective, it made it very clear what they were going to do from there. Yeah. But so, I mean, you mentioned Sarah, that the, the action gets ridiculous toward the end of the movie, which I, as I said, I 100% agree with. But in the early stages, I thought the action was, was quite well done. You have the freeway chase and oh, yeah. then you have the Rev 9 sort of, um, slaughtering its way through the, um, uh, the border patrol. Um, I wh- love wh- the beginning, the action. Whatever you call the it. The, uh... And setting it in an immigration center was, was wonderful. I love that. Yeah, detainment center, whatever you would call it. But yeah, yeah. so I mean, yeah, the the, the action and, and like yeah, the 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 fight between Grace and the Rev Nine, where she has the big sledgehammer or something. There was a like the action, I, and I was pretty into like I, I as I said, I wasn't crazy about the um the prologue thing where John Connor dies, but um and I, I thought there should have been more character development. But once it got going with the action, I was like, I'm I'm pretty much into this. It's not I don't it's, you know it's not as good to me as T two, but it's like you know it's it's not. You know, it's sort of within striking distance. You know, it's uh, I, I was pretty pretty into it. Um, what did did anyone? Does everyone agree with that? Was everyone kind of like on board with this movie up through the um, the border patrol stuff? I or loved did... the action until the plane got involved. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. That I thought, and I mean, I don't want to like overstate how politically smart or brave the movie is, but like there was something about just the fact that they were, you know, crossing the border illegally and they didn't make a big deal out of it that I was like, oh, this is not something I was expecting to see in this movie. And then everything that happened at the detention center. Yeah, I thought all of that was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. No, I, I, I love that. And I mean, because I mean, you know, Terminator has the franchise has a sort of connection with with Mexico and you know Spanish speaking characters and stuff. You know, it wasn't like yeah. that felt um, sort of artificially inserted into it. You know, it, that that sort of was a natural out, outgrowth of, of characters and themes that had existed in the earlier movies. And yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I, I actually wish they would have done a lot more with it. My uh, my pitch for this movie is that it should have been like Terminator meets Sicario. You know, it should have been like the whole thing to my mind should have been in Mexico and, and dealt with, yeah, like, and there should have been like a big shootout between border patrol agents and uh, um, cartels with like Terminators mowing people down. Like, you know, it, <laughs> it, it would have been so cool. Um, and I think that like crossing the border should have been the climax of the movie. Um, and then, you know, when, when they get across the border and they're, they're sort of safe and that's sort of the, you know, the end of the movie. Cause I felt like for me, the movie really peaked in the middle, you know, like I felt like the border or the, the detention center stuff, like I said, I was, I was into it um, up to that point. I thought it was, I was really enjoying it. And then the movie just like really kind of fell off a cliff for me after that point. Sarah, oh, wow. Sarah Cotter will never be safe in America though. Like she's, she's wanted in all 50 states. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I mean, there, there could, there could be some plot reason why Danny yeah, is know. safe, she's you know, a hard time. Uh, <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so, um, so yeah, so I'll just say like, for me, the movie, I kind of like the, the movie kind of lost me when they meet Arnold Schwarzenegger and, uh, I, I love Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's great, but I already saw him as like the good Terminator in three other movies. And, uh, you know, it's just like, it's been done. I, I hate the corny humor um, and I felt like once he enters the story, it kind of becomes like much too focused on him rather than developing the relationships between the other characters and like everything that he does already happens in Terminator two. And, um, and a lot of the stuff I just thought was silly. So, um, I don't know. Does anyone, how about, um, Raphael? I think you, 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 you probably disagree with me about that or. <laughs> Well, I get where you're coming from. It's kind of analogous, perhaps, to, you know, Han Solo showing up midway through Force Awakens. A kind right. of, you know, the movie was one thing and then it becomes another thing, you know? Um, but, you know, he's just so likable. Like old Arnold in that role. And, you know, it, it was kind of like he played it as Pops in Genesis. But, you know, this, you know, for me, admittedly, as a writer, I'm coming at most of this and I enjoyed everything that was presented on screen, but I kind of had questions after you know i found myself just asking a whole lot of logic issues about you know i mean i'm glad they at least addressed the elephant in the room like didn't she notice you're 400 pounds <laughs> you know i mean and then i'm thinking to myself how's but, he even sitting in that little lawn chair but then, the but then he has to say like no our relationship is not physical and it's just like it's just like so hard to take it seriously like when that kind of stuff is coming up you know, I mean, I guess it's entirely possible that they just had a platonic, you know, 
nice relationship and you know living off the grid together i don't know i mean to me i didn't have any issue with it specifically except for like my big issue with his character was how he knew about the the terminators you know he they they kind of waved it off in in a sentence he's like oh i felt the ripples across time and it's like what Ripples across time. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, that, Sarah, Sarah has something she wants to say about four hundred pound robot sex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I really liked the the older Arnold character, and I think it's it, part because there's some social commentary there um, that you know is what what those scenes are more about. You know, like like the idea of honestly, a lot of women would love to have a non-sexual relationship with a husband type who was that kind, um, and especially somebody who had been abused, um, somebody who had gotten out of you know a, a bad relationship and just wants to take care of her son. Um, so I, that whole thing was very touching to me and in, in a very genuine way, um, and it did to me feel like a new, exciting thing to do with this character because we've seen. You know, in the first Terminator, Arnold was just a, a killing machine. In the second one, he sort of became more and more humanized in a very short period of time um, because of John. And then in so the idea that the third one would be this guy who, you know, was stuck on Earth after after fulfilling his mission and had to figure out what to do, go do with himself and and be exposed to that kind of socialization um, and, and, and over decades, uh, to me, that was fascinating. I loved that. But I do think that there was a lot more social commentary, um, you know, in terms of, um, why it would be totally plausible for a woman to, to be in, in that relationship with him and that it just kind of worked. And for him to be hanging draperies, you know, and at one point have a ridiculous, wonderful conversation about, you know, what the right drapes are, um, and so I, I really loved the, the mix. And to me, it, it definitely also felt like you could kind of see the Deadpool every now and then. Like every now and then the whole, uh, it's Tim Miller, is that his name? Yeah. Uh, comes out. Mm-hmm. And you, you were like, oh, okay, this is, this is that bit. And, and he's sort of enjoying it. Like he's enjoying, uh, messing with the camp. Um, so well, there are a couple of yeah. scenes that went too far. Let's but get, overall, let's get An- really Anthony it. back in here. Anthony, thumbs up or thumbs down on Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie? Uh, I'm going to say thumbs up. I like recognize the problems, and I and I think that there are that they're shoehorning him in, and they have to get all this exposition across very quickly. So I agree that it, it's sort of the scenes feel kind of clumsy, and the writing feels clumsy. But I think the idea of the character is really compelling to me again of of this terminator who i mean not is, isn't programmed to be a protector but is programmed to be a killer and has done this thing that you know from our from the audience's perspective from sarah's perspective is completely unforgivable but has had 20 years to outgrow that programming and to mature and to you know find its own direction and and so i mean a lot of that like has to be conveyed in in very very few lines and so it doesn't completely work, but if I think I bought the idea enough, I bought the performance that um, Arnold was giving and the what it also brought out um, from Linda Hamilton that it it, it worked. I, I found it all very charming. I mean, I, I recognized the sort of machinery kind of creaking to make it all work, 
but it did work for me. Yeah, and to Sarah's earlier point about not just killing John off for no good reason, um, I think, you know, that that was the payoff, essentially. Seeing old Sarah and, and the old Terminator and having had that shared history and trauma was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think I, if if you had to do it, I, I when I saw the trailers that Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to be into in this, I, I assumed it was a cameo, you know, that they go to the cabin and they meet Arnold Schwarzenegger and he, you know, tells them whatever he tells them. And then they, they go on. I didn't think he was going to join the cast. And I think probably anything, you know, positive to my mind about him, his inclusion in this movie probably could have been, um, you know, incorporated into a cameo. Um, but I don't, it sounds like I'm, I'm three against one here. No, nobody <laughs> thinks that, does anyone think that it could have just been a cameo and he didn't have to like join as the fourth, like musketeer or I, whatever? I guess my response to that is that it has this sort of plausibility issue of, I mean, I, I remember watching X-Men Days of Future Past, right? And like they bring in Quicksilver and then he's the most powerful person. And then they're like, see you later. Uh, we're going to go save the world now. And, and I think there's a, there's a risk of that well, here no, too. But, but, no, but on the other hand, this movie has so many implausible <laughs> things that you, they could probably have gotten away with. No, no, it. but see, it could have, it could be anything like his power cell is running out or he like, he used to be fighting the Terminators himself and then he got damaged by one of them and that's why he started sending Sarah to do it and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, you could come up with some reason why he can't leave the cabin with them. To be honest, I thought he would be in the movie more. You know, I thought they probably split the difference pretty well. Um, but in terms of having a cameo, I've got a good one for you. They should have gone into the cabin. It should have been him hanging out with like 12 other T-800s. They were just sitting around watching football because they had nothing to do. <laughs> I mean, you tell me he was the, the last one that the, like the very last happened to kill John. Now there's got to be more of them. Mm. I do think that one of the things that made it work for me is that he was very fatalist and extremely, he wasn't just, um, you know, socialized to be human. He was very aware that his purpose is ultimately to die fighting this again. And I think that added a kind of gravitas that created uh, much more believability in the character, that he had this very fundamental understanding, you know, that he was there to ultimately contribute back and, and you know, catch up to uh, pay for his mistakes, essentially. But, I mean, again, like, the character was totally about non-toxic masculinity, and I love that. Well, well, I, I think what Raphael's saying about the relationship between Sarah and the Terminator, and she has to, you know, he killed John, and she has to come to terms with that and, and forgive him or whatever. I mean, I think that that's potentially interesting. But I, I feel like the problem is that in order to make that really work for me, you would have had to have devoted a lot of screen time to that. And once you bring him into the mix, you've got Danny, you've got Grace, you've got Sarah, you've got the Terminator. and there's just sort of this diffusion of whose story is this and who's got an arc. And I felt like in the end, like really nobody had an arc, right? Like uh, Grace is pretty much the same from beginning to end of the movie. Danny's she's already fierce and everything at the beginning of the movie. Um, you know, Sarah doesn't change that much. And the Terminator is already nice at the beginning of this movie and he's nice at the end. And so like somebody needs an arc in here somewhere. And so I've, I would say that Sarah has an arc. I think they all do. All right. Well, let me just finish my thought and then you can respond. But I mean, I feel like I, I feel like the arc, what the arc should have been is that Sarah has devoted her whole life to John. And even after he's dead, she can't let go of the idea that he's the savior of humanity. 
And she sort of resents it. She sort of resents this idea that Danny is now the savior of humanity and sort of gives her a hard time and is like, you're, you're, not, you're not measuring up to John. I trained John his whole life and he was good at all this stuff and he could save us. And you're just like half ass in this and you're not do, you're not up to my standards and everything. And then over the course of the movie, Danny proves herself to her and they, you know, and, and Sarah becomes like her surrogate uh, mother figure for her or Danny becomes a surrogate daughter figure for her. And I think See, that, that would that, be so disappointing for me if that is what had happened. I feel like that is what happened to some degree because to, to, to the scene that we talked about earlier on the train, Sarah is clearly a little resentful and bitter towards having been replaced by what she perceives as the new mother to the savior. But by the time she realizes that Danny is the savior and becomes her mentor, surrogate mother, I feel like she's come around to her. So that was definitely no, no, it, it's it. it's there, but it's there in like two scenes. And I think that you know, in order mm-hmm. to make me care about it, it should have been, it needed to be, like, there needs to be more character development. Like in T2, you know, there's like so many scenes between John and the Terminator, like talking about life and everything, you know. I agree I with you wholeheartedly like- in the sense that like, I'll try not to go off on a tangent, but I feel like I agree with you. Everything that was on screen, I enjoyed. But for instance, they could have cut out the whole airplane sequence and given us 20 more minutes of uh, character development, and it would have saved $20 million. Because I, I need to figure out how to make these movies for less. It's a real problem. Yeah, well, given the box office so far, they probably needed to make it for like $150 million less. But, well, exactly. Um... I mean, I, I don't know if you saw, I wrote a whole long rant about that this morning on Facebook. Because the thing is, uh, these movies are making $400 million at the box office. The last three and this one's on pace to do the same. And so they need to figure out how to make them for $100 million, not $200 Because the idea that the audience isn't there is just wrong. I mean, the audience is there. It's The studio can't figure out a way to make these financially viable. And so they keep hitting the reset button, and it's wildly infuriating. Yeah, and it might be cheaper, too. To Like, not only would it be cheaper, but it might just look real, like it's really happening. So, you know, like, okay, we don't need a C-64 cargo plane blowing up. We can just have a truck. Like, and, you know, it's, it's, it was fine exactly. in Terminator 2, but... I don't yeah, we to... don't need it to be Fast and Furious or Mission Impossible. Like you say, I mean, honestly, it was actually giving me flashbacks of The Mummy with Tom Cruise, which was not what I wanted to be thinking about in the middle of that movie. You know, <laughs> like The Terminator is just about like the chase, like Sarah was saying. And I guess they were trying to take that into the air, but just keep it on roadways and in back alleys. And that's fine, you know? Yeah, but I don't want to I don't want to get away from Sarah has a she was going to tell me how wrong I am about my, uh, my rewrite. <laughs> Well, I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity. Um, no, I mean I I just I think that it it's there are tropes that are established in terms of what women or female characters do to each other, and the idea of making uh, Sarah Connor into this sort of bitter, you know, old lady who's mad at the young woman would just have driven me insane. I would have not been happy with that. Um, and so to me, it's it's like. Sarah Connor is wise enough that she is not going to go there. And that's why she didn't. Like she, in the beginning, she immediately was protective of Danny because she saw herself and she said that she's, she, this is woman is me. And she's just assuming, um, that, that, that means that Danny is going to become the mother to a leader in part because, you know, Linda Hamilton is from a different generation. And, you know, it's like watching Hillary Clinton talk to, to, you know, AOC. Um, and so <laughs> this, this idea that, and I, you know, so you, you don't want to have these women sort of artificially, you know, pitted against each other for, for shallow reasons. She's old enough and wise enough to know better. And so trying to make it about John or trying to make it like she's already 
like she she understood that the price of saving the world was John's life. She has buried it. She's dealt with it. She drinks a lot because of it, but she's accepted it. You know, she's accepted the darkness of that. Uh, and so I found that that's part of the believability of this old wise woman. Like she's she's very rough around the edges. She's a little crazy, but she's very wise. And that's what I wanted to see out of the character and why it was so satisfying for me uh, to watch her truly grow up and evolve and change. Okay, wait, so Sarah, you said all, you thought all four characters had an arc. Like what yes. are those arcs? Okay, so Danny starts out as a natural leader, but she's not strong about it. She's not, and she doesn't have confidence in herself about it. She's just doing it because it comes naturally to her, right? And then she has to kind of turn those natural leadership skills into a more, uh, more of into an exoskeleton instead of the inner strength that she has, right? And so that's why she teams up. She needs to develop her liquid metal. She needs to take ammo training. She needs to go through all the training that, that Sarah Connor uh, uh, went through. Only Sarah Connor did it by, quote, you know, shacking up with, with any guy who she could learn from, right? Um, and so uh, Sarah, I think we already, you know, have established Sarah's arc, right? Have, Wait, I, have I already explained that? No, what, no, we'll say it again. Uh, Sarah's arc is that she has had to learn to deal with this bitterness um, and learn to accept the fact that she did save the world. She really still feels good about that. It's clear that she still feels good about that, but she also recognizes that she did it at great personal cost. She had to save the world, and uh, her son had to die. Um, and uh, the uh, Terminator, you know, the um, Arnold character, his arc is uh, that he had to become socialized and not only socialized in terms of how to behave like a human, but learn to feel in the limited way that he can. And no, the, but that all happened before the movie. Like, does yeah, he have an arc in the infer, movie? You infer that by the things that he says. You see that growth from the killer we already know. We don't have to see that because we already know what that looks like from Terminator 1. We already know what the beginnings of that look like from Terminator 2. So they didn't really need to do that. We already know how that process works. It's just nice to see it reach that fruition where he is an old man who has learned, you know, sort of reprogrammed himself to have wisdom and to have a sense of real deep guilt for what he's done. And how about Grace? Grace, I think, is too young to have as much of the arc as the other characters, but I think that she is so devoted to Danny in a very T2 kind of way, the same way that that, uh, that the Terminator was devoted to John, um, because she sees that as her mission, um, and she sees Danny as, like, her mother. I mean, Danny saved her in this future that she's from, and so she, her whole thing is about protecting Danny and loving Danny. And so it, she doesn't really necessarily have to have much change so much as she needs to be, um, you know, uh, consistent to that. And the fact that she goes through and is able to save Danny, that to her is, is quite enough. She is, you know, perfectly happy to give her life for Danny. And then in the end, it's a wonderful scene where, you know, uh, she sees, you know, young Grace. Danny sees young Grace in a playground. And she says, I don't want her to die for me again, or something along those lines. And so the love was returned um, from Danny, which I thought was wonderful. 
So, Anthony, what do you think? Do you think the characters grew and changed enough in this movie or they needed to grow and change more? Um, I would say that it was less an issue of the amount of growth and change and more that, um, you know, I think that, that the seeds of almost everything that, that Sarah is talking about were, were there, but that it was mostly abbreviated. Yeah. And, and I think the thing that the, the mitigating factor for me was the fact that, that I thought Sarah, um, Sarah Connor, uh, was such a strong character that, that, that the, the character work that was really defined by her relationship with each of these characters with the, you know, this robot that's killed her son, um, with Grace and, and to a lesser extent with Danny, I thought like that was interesting. I thought, you know, Sarah making peace with, um, you know, what's happened, um, and, and, and to an extent accepting, you know, the, the death of her son. I thought that was like all reasonably effective. And so, um, the other stuff, you know, in terms of like Danny's growth, um, and, and I, I thought like, you know, it, it was a little bit, she, she kind of faded into the background, I thought, for the second half of the film. And, and so it made it a little bit tough to be as fully invested in her. But, um, I thought there was enough there that I, I, I didn't think it was, um, completely unsatisfying. But even hearing, you know, um, the, the description there of all the different arcs, I mean, you, you get this feeling that it is all these different stories kind of jostling for attention. And so it's, it's, I guess to a certain extent, it's to what extent are you willing to do some of that work in your head and let, you know, the performances and the weight that, that some of these characters, that some of these actors bring to these characters do some of that work for you. I think we can all agree too, that that 30 minutes of the airplane should have been character development. (laughs) Whether you think it needed it or not, it definitely didn't need the whole plane thing. Yeah, well, and also the the like random general or whatever who was willing to give Sarah the fugitive wanted in fifty states an EMP device, like that whole thing, just like oh, I forgot about that guy. And especially since then, the EMP device just gets shot up, and they don't end up using it anyway. It's like who thought that this needed to be in this movie? Like, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it it needed to be there to set up the ending, but yeah, I agree, it was not elegant the way they did it. I mean, that guy just shows up out of nowhere. I mean, the pitch meeting. I don't know if you guys watch pitch meetings, but they're hilarious. Yeah, he made fun of that moment. Humorous thing on YouTube. Yeah, it's like, you know, uh, the guy just shows up and we don't, we get no explanation about their backstory, how they know each other, where he got the EMP, nothing. So that was a little weird. Right. But they don't need, but they end up just using Grace's power cell or whatever. So like, right. What did but, they need? but I think like to kind of get the audience prepared for that moment, like to, to have the initial plan fail kind of sets up the secondary mm-hmm. plan because it's the same concept. And, and and to have the moment where it's like the thing that we've worked to try to get and that is supposed to be the MacGuffin that finally kills this unkillable machine to have it be destroyed, I think that like increases the sense of, of tension and desperation in that final action scene. Oh yeah. After the plane sequence that apparently no one else liked. Oh I, yeah, I like the I like the airplane scene. It was just extra. <laughs> but you know, I agree with sure. you totally that that last scene at the dam was just sensational and I thought you know, I can't wait to honestly watch all three films back to back cuz I feel like it really is the culmination of everything. Like that's in that moment the fate of humanity is on the line. They have to keep Danny alive and this thing just seems unstoppable. You know? Yeah, I'll just, I want to say, I mean, I just, maybe my favorite scene in the movie was actually the part in the future where Grace is wounded and you just see like what the, the Rev 9's like allies look like when they're not trying to pass for humans and they're like so creepy and they like 
the 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 liquid oil kind of flows off them and forms all these tentacles and they're just stabbing people like I yeah. thought that was pretty pretty damn cool and and sort of reintroduced the horror elements into the franchise which I feel like is is sort of sorely lacking um, for sure ever since uh, the original Terminator and um, here's the interesting thing about that though David is uh, it it certainly seemed like it was a losing fight right like there was no way to beat the those robots it was almost kind of like Edge of Tomorrow they were just dominant right mm-hmm. but clearly there is a need. Because the whole concept of the film is Legion or Skynet or whoever it is feels like they're going to lose, which is why they're resorting to time travel to try and kill someone in the past, you know? Yeah, I just I mean, find I just find that interesting because I guess in future films we'll see more of that. I almost, well, you're to be honest, there's going to be a future film. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm hopeful, and yet I'm also fine if there isn't because I think like we finally went out on you know a relative high note that most people can agree on, and I also think it finally split the difference between T2's optimism and T3 cynicism in a satisfying way because you know it's like essentially now the moral is Judgment Day must happen. The world will end for a time. But humanity will eventually prevail. And that's the best of I mean, that's as good as you're gonna get with this series. Yeah, and, and I mean the the critical consensus seems to be that this movie is substantially less good than T one and T two, but substantially better than three, four, and five. Right. Um, I mean, because I think like T one and T two are just so such hollowed classics at this point. You're just never going to equal them, and you would need James Cameron's deft touch, which frankly he probably doesn't even have anymore. You know, it's been it's been a long time, and Avatar wasn't as good as Terminator Two either. So who knows? I guess um, I want to come back to so one one of the topics I want to bring up is you know I mentioned at the beginning that um, there's like Terminator and Aliens, and both franchises have struggled after the first horror movie and second action movie to find exactly what they want to do. But then you compare that to Mad Max, which had a recent movie come out, Fury Road, which was just, you know, yeah, which was just, you know, critically successful, commercially successful, just awesome on every level. And so why I'm just I'm just curious if anyone has any thoughts about why is was Mad Max able to create, you know, a movie that everybody loves for its fourth movie, whereas um Terminator and Aliens haven't. Well, not everybody loved it. I mean, some MRAs were very upset. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, let me, okay, well, I mean, maybe everybody loves is, uh, you know, taking a bit too far, but you know what I mean? Like, that was commercially sure. and critically successful oh, yeah. at the highest level. Right. Now, Fury Road was pretty, you know, near universally beloved. It'd be in the top five movies of this decade on most people's lists. And I mean, I would say that, I mean, there's probably a, a number of, of factors going in there, but but certainly... Um, the fact, I mean, one of the, the obvious differences to me is that the franchise was allowed to lie fallow for, um, 30 years. And, you know, I mean, I know that that was partly because George Miller was just having a really, really hard time getting Fury Road made, but it, it meant that from a perception, certainly from a perception standpoint, that, you know, that it was this thing that, um, you know, people didn't feel like it had been sort of run into the ground. And then, you know, they kept trying to like bring it back to life, but it was more, oh, like I didn't realize that, that Mad Max still had this life in it, but, uh, but I'm not like tired of it. Um, I'm not, I don't feel like they've like explored these 10 million variations of it. It's just, 
the first film in this franchise in, in, in 30 years. And then I think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that, I mean, George Miller, apparently, you know, based on, on the Mad Max movies, George Miller is a genius. And, and so he brought the full, you know, force of that, um, genius to bear. Um, with, with the alien movies, I think they've sort of, you know, struggled with a number of different people and even Ridley Scott. It seemed like he wasn't that interested in making an alien movie. It just was like, why don't you set this in the alien universe and make these other movies that interest you slightly more? And, um, yeah. And then with Terminator again, it's, it's even in this case, Cameron was involved and I think that helped the film, but it's not directed by him. I don't know for sure that, you know, he could make a movie as good as T2, but I think I suspect that if it had just been Cameron writing and directing, it probably would have been better than this. Well, I think Anthony's... I, I blame marketing and the, and the fact that, that people had Terminator fatigue from those three films that shall not be named. But like, I, I do think that. I wasn't super impressed with the marketing. I was, I was a hundred percent signed on because Linda Hamilton was in it. And that is why we bought like advanced tickets and everything. But that, and when I heard it was a continuation of T2, those were my selling points, but I haven't seen any trailers that seemed interesting. I was worried about it. I see. Whole, that's funny you know, for months. Yeah, none of you liked the trailer, and I actually thought the trailer was pretty awesome. Like, we're talking about the one where, you know, we first see the, the action sequence on the highway play out, and it's got that really solemn song in the background, like, I am the hunter, or oh, whatever. Oh, that was great. And I actually Linda, really loved that. Like but that. I feel like that was more of the teaser. Oh, I guess. But yeah, yeah, I, I like the teaser trailer a lot. I don't know if I saw the others. But to, to the points that you both just made, um, I think, for one thing, Fury Road was just lightning in a bottle. But beyond that, yeah, like Anthony said, having the time off. Because I think the problem with all these franchises is they kind of ebb and flow over the years. Predator, Terminator, Aliens, like some installments are better than others. But there is kind of just a general cynicism that underlies it all now. People are like, oh, geez, another one? Really? (laughs) And it's too bad because sometimes like Dark Fate is overall quite good, but it certainly was burdened with the weight of the failures of the other ones. Well, and and did George Miller spend 30 years? I think this is true, right? He spent all that time refining Fury, the script for Fury Road, right? So, I mean, it's the exact opposite of the like T3, Mm -hmm. like, Let's write it in two weeks because we have we got, got greenlit or something. You know, I mean that yeah. probably makes a huge difference. If you give anybody right. thirty years, you know, to to pursue something that they're actually passionate about instead of just, well, this is my job and I'm I need to make my house payments. You know, <laughs> that very cynical thing that we read, like that the difference is pretty clear. It was also just a stunning achievement. I mean, no one saw that movie coming. Like, essentially, like a two-hour car chase. That was just the most gorgeous, ambitious thing. I mean, it's a miracle that got filmed. I mean, I don't think the studio had any idea what he was actually up to. That production took like two and a half years. (laughs) He just, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, let me read also this quote I came across. So, um, asked if there were disagreements in the edit... Cameron told Cinema Blends, I would say many, and the blood is still being scrubbed off the walls from those creative battles. This is a film that was forged in fire. So, yeah, but that's the creative process, right? This is about Terminator Dark Fate. I should have said that. But, yeah, so uh, there were apparently some serious disagreements between James Cameron, the producer, and Tim Miller, the director, on some of the – I don't know what, but some Mm -hmm. of the creative choices in this movie. And so that's probably, you know, that's a different situation than George Miller, Fury Road, where – yeah, 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 30 years to tweak it however you wanted. What is Cameron doing right now? What's he working on? 
Avatar like, is he still two, Avatar Avatar? two through five. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> no, but I it's think funny, that I mean, it... my favorite James Cameron film is Strange Days, which bombed at the box office, completely bombed. So, and Avatar is probably my least favorite, and that made a, just stupid amounts of money. Strange Days was a really good flick. Uh, yeah, you know, so whenever he agreed. and Bigelow work together, good stuff happens. Mm. Yeah, but but yeah, I think they literally they actually just started filming Avatars two and three. Um, I I agree. I thought Avatar was fine, but um, you know, I wouldn't have said that making four more or whatever is how James Cameron should devote the next ten to twenty years of his life. Yeah, Avatar was a great experience. I mean, it's like it was. I saw it like three times in three different theaters just because the 3D was mind blowing. But you know, who knows? I'll always give him the benefit of the doubt. But you'd think he could have maybe moved on to something else by now. Well, he did the 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 Battle Angel movie, which, as I said, was a great movie if it had come out in 1995. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he didn't direct that. That was Robert Rodriguez, I think, directed it. Right. Oh yeah. Right. It was a script that he actually did write in like 2000 or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be very curious to see the Cameron cut and the Miller cut, you know, of Dark Fate put them side by side. I mean, because they clearly have different sensibilities. Yeah. And I think my gut instinct is to say the Cameron cut would be a lot better. I mean, with no disrespect to Tim Miller, but I think what's missing from Dark Fate, even in its final form, is the is the elegance of those first two films. It's just Cameron's got a very particular style that is timeless. You watch T2 today, it's as good as it was 28 years ago. Yeah, and I feel like the, the, the Cameron cut, I, in my head, I imagine, is less goofy humor mm-hmm. and more genuine human emotion um and i mean tim miller is a much i mean i, I thought dead the deadpool movies were great but he's a much less experienced director um, right and he didn't even do the second one he just did the first one okay right. all right but but he's a much less experienced director even than james cameron was when he made t2 right so um oh although to be fair james cameron's most recent films feature films as director are avatar and titanic Neither of which I think acquit themselves particularly well when it comes to convincing human emotion. Yeah, he has the George Lucas problem of, of he really needs to hire somebody else to write his dialogue. Like, you know, when he was working with like Galen Hurd and, you know, people like that, he, he did better with this, this kind of thing. But I, I do think that, that Cameron, uh, is because he's such a great visionary and he's good at this shit. He has a really hard time knowing where he needs help. And I think that he would be um, outstanding if he just had somebody else write his freaking dialogue. I've always felt that way about Neil Blomkamp, but less so, admittedly, about Cameron. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the second time Titanic's come up. Are we not liking Titanic all of a sudden? What's happening here? I love Titanic, <laughs> I and I feel very... I, yeah. But I, I, I mean, Didn't we all cry like babies during that movie? <laughs> like, the dialogue is bad. It's is an it? amazing movie if you watch it as a silent film. Like, literally, turn off, because the visuals are amazing, the music is amazing, just take off all the dialogue and it's an amazing movie. However, again, the original script, like, Rose was a cutter in that, and thank God that part got cut out. Thank you very much. Because huh. that's, that's just not Edwardian. It's actually interesting. I don't know if this was the final script for Aliens, but one time I read the script for Aliens and the dialogue was not that good. And I think Aliens has some of the best dialogue of any movie I've ever seen. And all the lines are like basically the same, but there's like a lot of extraneous stuff that got Mm. cut out. And I wonder like if someone else polished it up a little bit or if the actors were kind of, you know, um, ad-libbing a little bit. But but yeah, I mean... So I mean, it's got sore spots too. Like you've got you've got the game over man from 
That's a classic, Sarah. That's great. I will I will defend that with my life. Um, all right, let's let's uh, we're almost out of time. So let's. Is there anything else? Let's focus here. Um, oh, what is? Or um, do you think that there will be another Terminator movie after Dark Fate? And if so, any thoughts on what direction it should take? Um, Anthony. Um, I'm skeptical. I mean, I feel like. If they try, I mean, I, I think to a certain extent there, there's this, you know, studio conviction that there's just, there's something here and they have to just like figure it out. And, and at this point, I wonder if this is going to disabuse them of that notion or if, if it doesn't, that, that potentially it becomes a TV series again. Because I mean, not commercially speaking, but I think artistically, you could make a really strong case for the Sarah Connor Chronicles being the best oh, yeah. continuation of of the uh of the story and you know even even leaving that aside i think there's a sense just that you know obviously a lot of the of ip and and stuff is moving to to tv as well so if if it were to come back um and i'm not necessarily convinced that it will um i think it might come back as a tv i think the best thing to do would be to let it lie for a while because even though i like dark fate i think it's also perfectly fine as an ending and you know wait until somebody Probably not James Cameron because he's got other things to do, but somebody has the most amazing idea for a Terminator sequel and then you can make it then uh, rather than just, you know, cranking another reboot out in a few years. Yeah. Well, and also, like, I'm trying to think, like, Genesis was basically a reboot. Like, this is basically a reboot. And uh, and, and so it's just it, it, it's sort of um, disheartening to think because I, I don't think that this just from what I understand, it's not doing great. And it, I, I don't think there's going to be a sequel, direct sequel to this made, which means to my mind, what's going to happen is in five years or something, someone's, they're going to reboot it again. And they're going to be like, ah, people didn't like this Danny person. We're going to go back to John Connor. People love John Connor. And like, it's like, how many times can you, you know, throw out what came before? And they always take the wrong lessons from, from, from failures, like from box office failures. They always, you know, it's like if, if a, if a film with a female lead does poorly, well, I guess audiences right. don't like women. <laughs> you know, what the fuck? How? Why is that the takeaway? <laughs> yeah, but so Sarah, what do you think is going to happen? What would you predict? I mean, I I think we can all all agree that if unless I mean it just opened uh, literally this weekend, so we don't actually know what. I mean, the first obviously the first weekend that it's open is so important for the overall arc of, of box office success. But you never know. I mean, it could, you know, it could pull through. People could have been distracted by Halloween. Well, um, here's what we can kind of count on at this point. I mean, the last three installments all made around $400 million, And based on first weekend grosses, this is right in line with that. I mean, and there's a whole series of films like Star Trek, the, the recent Star Trek films, Alita, you know, Tron Legacy, films that make $400 million and are deemed failures. And this is just going to be another one of those. And Hollywood has to figure out a way to make 400 million a viable amount of money again. <laughs> I think that the the way that they might do that is is practicing more restraint. I mean, honestly, we all agree that that huge most expensive scenes mm-hmm. that were in this film Have were we mentioned we didn't like the plane? Let's just go yeah, back to that. Yeah, we hate the plane. And all of that, you know, all of that was was the most expensive and yeah. and it took up a half an hour of of the film and nobody likes it and it's like, come on guys, like stop you know, getting so I think this idea that that, you know, with especially male directors, I'm sorry, but they get really excited about just going, you know, trying to top and trying to 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 
you know, do do what's been done before, but even bigger and better and, and more Michael Bay-ish. And I'm like, really? Are we still doing that in 2019? That's, it's, yeah. it's, it's very upsetting. Well, well, and particularly for Terminator, which to my mind, the power of the movies comes from the juxtaposition of these like creepy robots from the future against this totally believable everyday reality. Yeah. And when factories. you make it- Fucking factories. Yeah, and when you make it like evil robots from the future in a sort of like a superhero milieu, it, it just doesn't work. It's like there's no contrast anymore. Those minutes feel like a completely different film. Like it's distra- it was distracting. I just feel like it could have been like, story wise. I get it. You know, they were trying to you know have a, a respite, which was on the airplane, and that's nice to get them from point B to C. But you know, yeah, they could have just been condensed or like essentially cut out. Like you know, they they're having plane troubles, and they have to crash land. All of a sudden, they're on the ground. You don't need to show us like fifteen minutes of bouncing around the fuselage. You know. Yeah, or if you're going to do it, at least have a real plane, like in um, Dark Knight Rises, right? That was mm-hmm. the one, right? Where, where, like, they actually filmed it on an actual plane, mm-hmm. and it's freaking awesome, you know, but it doesn't look like some, like, weird video game Polar Express, like, mashup. Yeah, where everybody's bouncing against the walls of a fallen plane and still totally, just getting slight, small bruises, you know, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we're out of time. So um, why don't we wrap things up there? Unless anyone have any, anyone have any final thoughts that they really want to get in here before we wrap this up? Oh, I guess uh, just in terms of the future, um, I, I think they're probably not going to do anything more with this. I, you know, even though it's an IP and studios always have that inclination to, at this point, I think it's the best ending we're going to get. And you know, we got James Cameron and Linda Hamilton and Arnold back for one last go at it. But what is there left to do, really? You know? Yeah. Um, Sarah, final thought. I would be, I mean, I, I totally agree with, uh, you know, the fact that I don't think they're going to do more if this doesn't uh, kick up, you know, financially. But the, um, I did love the final scene of Sarah Connor with, um, Danny, uh, you know, and she's going off on her training. And I would totally love to have a, a film with those two, you know, a buddy film. I think it's the, the last we'll see of Sarah Connor. Um, but I wish, that we could have that because I really uh, love, you know, the women in this movie and I love the characters uh, and I wanted more. And it's sad if, you know, people don't go see this because then we won't get that, yeah. which we probably won't anyway, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anthony, final thought? Um, yeah, I guess I would just say that probably my initial tweet about it being awesome slightly overstated things, but I think it's a pretty good Terminator sequel. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sorry I saw it. I don't blame you too much for uh, making me- <laughs> I think everyone should go see it. Thank you very much. And I, I totally agree with Anthony that it was awesome. So oh, yeah. you stand by your initial reaction. Yeah, stand by it. I- you agree with past Anthony. I, I love it. It, it is awesome. Go see it, everybody. <laughs> All right, cool. So let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Raphael Jordan. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Anthony Ha, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Raphael Jordan for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. 
So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.